The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. And I'm Anthony Curry. In this edition, we will drill down on some ugly trade and consumer data numbers coming from China. We'll explore what role farmers play in India's forthcoming general election for prime minister. And finally, we'll discuss the gloomy conditions afflicting automakers. But first, we're going to hand the program off to our Breaking Views colleagues, Pete Sweeney and Chris Bedore in Hong Kong who will then pass the baton on to Clara Fiera Marquez and Yuna Galani. Chinese trade data is out for December. It's looking ugly. Exports came down by 4.4%. Imports came down by 7.6%. Both surprised analysts on the downside. It adds to concerns that Chinese consumers are cooling off, as well as uh, foreign consumers uh, losing appetite to buying Chinese goods. I'm here with Chris Bedore. We're going to talk a little bit about what the actual situation is. Chris, there's been tons of stuff. Apple, iPhone sales, cutting projections and production. Car makers are worried. Uh, Is it time to panic about the Chinese consumer? Yeah, well, I think that this is probably the first time that a lot of uh, investors in the U.S., Europe, are now fully cognizant that there's a slowdown happening in China's consumption space, especially after Apple cut its forecast for revenue um, we've had car companies also come out and say they don't expect very good sales numbers in China. Um, I think that the picture is actually a lot more complex than that allows for, though. I think there's we're clearly seeing a slowdown, but it's sort of uneven at this point, and it's not it's not a collapse. Let's put it that way. Well, so where are the where are the good parts? Where is the not slowdown showing up? Yeah. So, I mean, we have had some companies, foreign companies that target sort of the middle of the Chinese income segment. Um, So firms like Nike is a good example where they actually came in last month and they said um, that actually sales in in China were doing just fine, that they were extremely robust. Um, And that stands in pretty sharp contrast to what we've seen from a lot of the luxury retailers who have given the exact opposite warnings that that it's it's they're seeing a clear slowdown. So it seems to be that there's some sort of Maybe not a bifurcation, but at least a very uneven slowdown where it's hitting the top end more than perhaps other segments of the market. And Chinese tourism spending seems to be hold, holding up okay as well, which mm-hmm. a lot of people would expect to, to tank and yet isn't. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I guess it's the first time we're going to see, you know, what the Chinese consumer is going to do in reaction to, to all these different hits to sentiment they're taking. The trade war, um, you know, these corrections to the way the banking system works, the allocation of capital through shadow banking, um, you know, the debt problem. And (laughs) it's becoming clear what is and is not, you know, cyclical. But just most broadly, I mean, the next question going to everybody is, what is the Chinese government going to do about this? Um, You know, so we've seen signs that there's stimulus light underway. um, But exactly what form that take is still kind of fuzzy. We had some plans about the fiscal deficit. How's that shaping up? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you hit on really the key point there, which is that one reason that this sort of slowdown, if you will, is different than previous episodes that we saw right after the global financial crisis or even around 2015, 2016, is there are these questions that 
maybe the Chinese consumer, which up until this point, the narrative has always been, oh, well, you know, China's economy might go, GDP figures might go up or down, but the consumer is really, I mean, that's a structural upward shift. Now we're seeing more questions around that latter part. And that becomes a little bit more difficult for the government to really tackle. So one of the things that we hear now is, well, maybe they'll cut uh, taxes on autos, for instance. Right. Autos are one area of the consumer, you know, basket that you can actually point to that are cratering, um, you know, possibly by, uh, you know, double-digit percentages in some sections of the market. So, um, yeah, that that'll be an interesting one, one to watch. On the other hand, they were overstimulated by tax cuts in the first place. <laughs> That's an issue. Yes. <laughs> well, well, I mean, just I mean, what's interesting here is like this gives everybody an excuse. You know, to blame China for for whatever their corporation is doing, right? What do you think going forward that like you know investors should look for with your corporation and their the Chinese or foreign who's saying you know the Chinese consumer is is to blame because they're not buying my products? Is it is it facile or? Yeah, no, there was. I think it was for me. It was an interesting takeaway from the Apple uh, announcement because what you had is you had a few different kind of groups of analysts where some of them were more focused on China and it was whoa, there's a China slowdown. That's the reason for. Apple's, you know, um, expectations of lower revenue going forward. But then you had another camp that said, well, yeah, yeah, China. But fundamentally, some of this was also the company-specific issues and their pricing strategy and emerging markets and so forth. And so I think what the temptation is going to be going forward is if, if you're a chief financial officer and you have to make a statement on the earnings and why earnings or guidance isn't going to be quite as expected – you can always point to China. And the, the tricky part here is that there's probably a grain of truth in that. Nobody's saying that that's, that's wrong. Right. It clearly is right. But the issue is then, well, how much of that is really no, China's fault? Apple, or you've the got company? like a super expensive phone. You've been riding this market for so long. You know, you've just had a nice ride. Was Apple ever going to have more upside compared to where it was, you know, given the competition coming up from, from companies like Huawei, from companies like Samsung, who are just kind of nibbling away at their share? Yeah. Anyways, I mean, economically speaking, there should be room to stimulate consumption further. I mean, everybody talks about the Chinese consumer growth, but that's because it was so depressed before. I mean, this was an economy that ran on fixed asset investment, real estate speculation, whatever. I mean, I think consumption is still just shy of 40% of GDP, still small compared to some other country companies. And a lot of people think that more tax cuts transferring state assets into consumer hands through one by hook or by crook would actually juice things a lot more. Do you, do you buy that? Yeah, I mean, I think that in principle, uh, the ideal way kind of from a just macroeconomic policy perspective to, to choose growth would be to focus it on consumers. I mean, after all, a stated goal is to part of the so-called rebalancing of China is to rebalance more toward consumption and away from things like investment and manufacturing and so forth. So things you'd want to do toward that end is you want to cut taxes on various things, even if autos is a particularly uh, problematic, shall we say, example. Mm -hmm. But you do want to cut taxes on consumers. You want to strengthen the social safety net, get people saving less, get people spending more. Uh, those are the I ideal areas where you can do that. Um, but then, of course, you run into kind of internal political issues with doing any of that, at least at an accelerated timetable that they want to. Well, there's also concerns about rising household debt levels, right? I mean, so certainly a lot of people are borrowing to buy. Well, it looks to be going into real estate, but also other stuff. Anyways, well, it's a tough one to solve for, but uh, we'll see how it turns out this year. Thanks for talking to me, Chris. I'm Clara Ferreira Marquez in Singapore, and I'm chatting today with my fellow columnist, Nigalani, based in Mumbai. Well, it's election year in India, and things are not looking great for Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who's seeking a second term, 
or for the ruling BJP badly bruised in regional elections late last year. Una has been looking at one reason for the pummeling, deep distress and anger among India's vast rural population, and at what Modi can do to appease them. Now, Una, India's agriculture has long been a, a problem, a problematic feature. The vast majority of farmers are left at the mercy of the monsoon. They suffer extremely when there's drought and um, any economic downturn. What's the difference this time and what's causing these very noisy and um, very large protests? Hi, Clara. Well, I think when you look at the farming sector in India, it reveals one of the country's biggest employment problems. I mean, this is a very inefficient sector to begin with. We have almost two thirds of the population of 1.3 billion people living in the countryside. And half of the entire workforce here depends on agriculture, which contributes to 17 percent of GDP. And now on top of that, we have reports coming in across from across the country of farmers dumping things, you know, staple crops like onions and potatoes, because they can only sell them for less than what they cost to produce. Now, all of this is underpinned by many problems, including a lack of infrastructure, uh, lack of access to the end consumers. Um, but, but the point really here is that many of these people are being squeezed hard and they are desperately unhappy. Put it in the electoral context for that for us then. I mean, how much of an issue is this for Narendra Modi right now? Obviously, the low prices will be good for inflation, so at least some people are benefiting. Yeah, so you're right. City dwellers and uh, international investors are all happy because low crop prices mean that core inflation is low. But for farmers, rural income growth has declined very sharply under Modi. And this issue, uh, the issues that farmers face generally becomes a hot topic around the election um, because the incumbent government almost always gets the boot if voting coincides with a period of rural stress. And this is exactly where we are now. So this is basically a problem that is just too big to ignore with the election due, as you said, by May. So what's the solution here? I mean, the, the traditional answer has been loan waivers. So waiving the loans owed by farmers to bank. Is that being floated again? And how can we really see that as anything more than a band-aid? Yeah, well, you know, we've got politicians on both sides of the political divide now um, announcing loan waivers. We've had these to a tune of about $25 billion over the past two years. And that's up to one fifth of local budgets at a time when state finances are already strained. So it's not a very fiscally sensible thing to do. Modi is now calling these lollipops. I mean, essentially a sugar hit that doesn't last. And in a sense, he's right, because the main problem with waiving farm loans is that farmers only get a fraction of their borrowings from these official low cost sources, i.e. formal banks. And the rest of this comes from money lenders, which charge up to about 60% per annum in interest. So you waive the loans, but the worst of it really remains. Obviously, it's extremely serious. It's caused a, a, a suicide epidemic in, in parts of Maharashtra over the years. But what are the longer term solutions that Modi could turn to and can all agree that it, it needs structural change? And what could he realistically present um, as the election approaches? Yeah, well, you're right. This is a social problem. It's an electoral problem. It's an economic problem. Um, the real term, long term solution, you know, lies in things that aren't very quick to do, you know, investment in, in, in agriculture, fewer farmers, helping farmers to adopt more sustainable methods. There's an entire state in India, Andhra Pradesh, and it's trying to go chemical chemical free. Um, and that's an initiative that's been backed by BNP Paribas and a local tech billionaire, billionaire. So these are not wacky ideas, but the problem is they all just take a lot of time. You know, if Modi wants to act fast, 
uh, one of the things that we might see is the announcement of some sort of universal basic income. Um, he can work out the details later. He can promise it for now. But essentially, if you can roll up the existing subsidies that farmers get and transfer them directly to farmers, you know, we could see farmers getting as much as, you know, in some states up to 700 dollars per year. That's a large chunk of India's average GDP per capita. And, and at the moment, of course, they're receiving this in kind, right? So the idea is to give them a lot more autonomy. Yeah. yeah, And, you know, people can choose what they spend their money on. Um, it would be progressive as well, because smaller, I mean, depending on how you gave it, you handed it out, you know, um, it could be progressive. Um, so it could be sustainable. I mean, it's obviously populist, too. And it's not a very easy thing to work out. And the fact that we don't have a lot of detailed records about land ownership and all sorts of things make, make it very, very tricky to enact. But I mean, this is how desperate the situation has become. And in the age of social media in India, with millions of people now online, the problems of the farmers are just too hard to ignore. Well, that's fantastic. You know, that's all we have time for today. Thanks. Thank you, Clara. The Detroit Auto Show is underway, the annual gathering of car makers where they go to show off their wares. And fresh from the Motor City is Anthony. You were there checking everything out. Yep. Tell us, well, first of all, this has been going on for more than 30 years. In its current form, yeah. In its current form. In January, yep. in Detroit, in Detroit, possibly the worst time of year ever to Quite travel possibly. there. Yeah, in fact, we were we were talking on on Saturday night about how it didn't seem like previous years because we hadn't seen any ice in the river that flows uh, between Detroit and Canada to the north, one of the few places in America where you can. Sorry, Canada to the south, one of the few places you can look south into Canada. But then, hey presto, the following day and for the rest of the state, there was uh, ice all over the river. It's like. Moving this thing out of January, which they're going to do, they're going to have it in June as of next year, is just going to be awesome. So what took them so long? This seems like a, just a really well, a lot, a lot not it, a great time. To, a lot of it is just because it. you set it up in January and then there are other auto shows like New York has one in uh, in April usually. Um, Geneva's got one. LA's got one in December. Now you got all, And you've got one in Beijing now and elsewhere around the world. So it's like, well, we've done it here, so we always will. But finally they're changing it, which is, is a great thing to do. Okay, so... You were there. Yep. It seems pretty gloomy. There weren't a lot of people there that are normally there. Why don't you tell yeah. us, first of all, who wasn't there that typically yeah. shows so up? So the, the first things. thing, we, we, we already found this out earlier last year, but three of the biggest um, car makers who are normally there weren't. So Audi, BMW, and Daimler-Benz uh, all said they weren't going to go. So all the Germans basically well, said Well, Volkswagen was there, but um, okay. which is the owner of Audi. So there was, there was still at least one representative there. Um, but that meant there was a lot more floor space, and you could tell that going around. You had a lot of the, the small, smaller car makers, and even they had they normally have this sort of sideshow outside called Automobile D, which is where Detroit tries to sort of digitalize in, itself. Yeah, basically, almost like what what the Consumer Electronics Show is doing, and also a few other things they've been doing. Um, but that now took up a decent amount of the of the main area as well. So that's what happened when you have you know when you have three big gold makers not coming, you have but a lot more space and it, a lot that, fewer people. Is that unusual that they didn't show yes. up to this? And, yeah, they are there. Their reason they've been there pretty much every year well sometimes it's it's about resources but also you just look around you you don't need the auto shows as much as you used to even ford for example although it unveiled its mustang at the show on monday quite nicely actually they brought it down from the from the ceiling and it was pretty cool but they actually uh, unveiled their big seller one of the big sellers the ford explorer last thursday before the show opened and that's part of, i think if you, if you leave it to the show you are one of many mm-hmm. right so whereas now with social media especially i think 
a lot of them are thinking we can actually take control more of the news cycle, even if it's just for like 15 or 20 minutes, and have more play from doing it outside of some of these shows. So I think that's partly why. And also, yeah, maybe it's because they think, why go in January? We can't show off as much what we're doing. There were several um, automakers that weren't present in Detroit, but also some notable executives. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one is currently languishing in jail, and that's Carlos Ghosn, who uh, until very recently was the head of both uh, the Renault and Nissan companies, so the alliance they've got. Um, He's still under investigation. He's not there every year, but he's often there. The one person who was really missing from the show was one of the pseudo-local uh, CEOs, and that's Sergei Marchionne from Fiat Chrysler, who, of course, uh, passed away after a brief illness last year. And he normally, ev- everyone would pack in on Monday morning to listen to his his press conference where he would spar with journalists, and he you know, once called me out as well. Uh, and it was always fun to go. You'd always get some good quotes, and it was sort of almost a, 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 a rite of passage for going to the show. Yeah. So that was missing. Did anybody take his place? Was well, there Mike, any Mike one Manley, big interview? Yeah, Mike Manley, the, the new CEO who's replaced him, he went for a more sort of uh, it wasn't quite such a, a, a big, high profile. He had smaller um, individual and, and smaller roundtables that he did rather than the so great big So he didn't do the show. big interview? Didn't do the big okay. interview, no. Okay. The other one I'd say wasn't there. He, and he, I, don't, must be, I, I haven't really paid much attention to this company until quite recently, but the, the CEO of Peugeot, Carlos Tavares, is now seen as the star of the industry. He bought Opel... Uh, from GM a couple of years ago, and he's managed to turn around a company that lost money for GM what for is 20 Opel? years. What is that? A, uh, well, that's, a the, car? that's that's the no, that's the GM European business. So Vauxhall, oh, Opel, okay. they bought two years ago, okay. um, and he's managed to turn that around and make a profit t- uh, after 20 years of General Motors basically failing to do so. And he's seen as the star of the industry. Again, he's not often there, and Peugeot wasn't a company I used to look at very much. But you know, you want a star at the at the at the show sometimes, and there just wasn't one this year. Anthony. Just following out of the corner of my eye, the car industry, they've had um, several years of really, really good, mm. um, good years, I would yeah. say. Lots of, you know, sales and whatnot. It seems to be slowing down. Maybe you could kind of paint a picture of what's yes. actually going on in the auto industry Yeah, and it's, right it's, it's, it's interesting, actually, that the show through, maybe because they saw this coming and some of them decided to pull out, but it really was it felt reflective of the mood in the industry. So uh, this year, I think there's meant to be 30 cars being unveiled last year. Even though last year was over the Martin Luther King Day long weekend, there was, I think, seven, almost 70 cars unveiled. Um, and it's it sort of, the industry doesn't feel very happy right now. General Motors came out with a positive set of um, predictions for its earnings last week for 2019, which really surprised people. For this week's been rather more downbeat, uh, which fits in with the moody in the industry, right? So you, if you look across the major automakers, Western automakers, let's leave Tesla out of this. It's not a major one. It's too small. Um, but basically, the stocks for the 11 biggest or major ones we look at are just about in bear market territory after hmm. falling over the past few months. You've got tariffs. You've got slowdown in China, slowdown in Europe, worries about how much um, uh, sales in the US will slow, having been at very, very high levels for several years. Yeah. Um, but there's also other issues coming through. So um, one of our colleagues on the news side, uh, or of our colleagues on the news side on Reuters put out a piece last week saying that um, the major car makers have earmarked $300 billion for electric vehicles alone. And that's a huge amount of money, and a lot of it is duplication. Hmm. So you think, well, are you going to get the money back on that? And then you think you look at autonomous vehicles, and you think, how are you going to get the money back on that? Especially now there seems to be a bit more skepticism coming through. The CEO of Waymo, which is Google's um, self-driving unit, said a couple months ago, look, we won't be able to get autonomous cars to do everything and go everywhere. 
Um, GM last week in a presentation, the head of Cruise, which is his autonomous vehicle unit, proudly proclaimed, look, we could go after a trillion plus miles if we get the cost per mile of a car down to X, then we could have fleets of robo-taxis, even though in the same presentation, um, fellow executives also say we've got this great big moat around our trucks and SUVs they're not going to go autonomous it's going to be fantastic uh, and we'll be fine it's like well the two kind of jar against each other because um, Dan and Mann head of crew seem to be also going after that um, but you know people are starting to wonder how much can we really get done and a man even himself you know, they were meant to be coming up with their first set of robo taxis going live commercially this year and someone on the call last week asked him well, will we see them this year? And he said, ask me at the end of the year. So the timeline is being pushed hmm. further and further back, which means if you are seeing a slowdown in your business, your traditional business and the idea uh, of being able to make new money or extra money um, on these new businesses coming through is getting pushed back, then that's a real problem for the industry. All right. Well, so speaking of pushing back, does the fact that they have now finally come to their senses and decided to have this thing in June. Does that have something to do with it? I mean, why all of a sudden are they now doing it in the summer? Well, I think probably because they, they had an opportunity to. I think also Detroit is now in a much better position to host this uh, in June. It has the feel of a city that could probably um, do a better job in the summer of hosting um, yeah. an event that could well become a festival. There'll be, there'll be street trucks selling, you know, selling food. Um, but the most important thing, I think, for the car industry that they can't yet do in Detroit is to take us all out, us, the press, but also those who come to the general public and say, this is what happens with an autom autonomous vehicle. This is how an electric vehicle rides. Come and see what we do. Because you can do that to an extent in Geneva, or you can do it to an extent in New York, or you can do it in, in uh, Las, uh, Los Angeles at its show in December. But, but all of these cities, and you think Las Vegas as well, they get a lot of traffic. And, and you know, getting stuck in a traffic jam is, is quite usual. Whereas Detroit... You know, the traffic jams are when you get out of the city onto the onto the the, the, to, onto to the, the suburbs. Right. So if you think, you know, you, you've got all this space and you can show off all of your various mobility platforms in such a better way. And your city, right? And your city. And that's that's an important thing to do, I think. Right. Know, Detroit, in some places, is up and coming. In others, it's still um, a bit of a mess and needs a lot of work and a lot of help. But, you know, by bringing this into the summer next year, you can showcase so much more. And I think from a city perspective and industry perspective, that's a much better thing to do. All right. Well, that seems uh, quite smart. I'm sure you'll be looking forward to going there in oh, June. Yes. Okay, Anthony, thanks for your time. Pleasure. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Pete Sweeney, Chris Bedore, Clara Fiera Marquez, and Yuna Galani. Hats off to our producers, Ross Shoulder, Andrew D'Antonio, and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.